Hello again to the second podcast in what I've decided is now the new season for the Fram Jacket podcast. And it is with Tom Southam, who is an ex-professional racing cyclist from the UK um, and is very well known in that world. Uh, he is uh, a very good writer. Um, and he is also the sports director of EF Education. I can't remember the exact name. Um, it's the big American team, which has lovely pink kit. It's very lovely. I'm not being sarcastic. It's really cool. Um, and um, he's a really, really interesting character. He's definitely his own man. Um, he's quite different from me. He um, is quite uh, sort of circumspect and, and quieter and more considered. I'm a sort of throw it all out there, over exuberant prick. And so it's quite an interesting contrast, a sort of finding a, a sort of midway between that um, and me sort of calming down a little bit, not a lot. Um, and if you're not already aware, the Fram Jacket podcast is all about having a proper chin mic which is important because sometimes men need that if there are really serious mental health issues that they want to or just horrible events in their life they want to talk about uh, things that are bothering them but also because it's just a nice thing to do and in our modern lives quite often we don't get to talk about things properly um and it's just interesting and i've tried to always find interesting charismatic people to talk to about stuff um, it is not an interview it is a chin wag sometimes it's a bit more or less like that um, but the important thing is to talk about real life we never ever edit because I want to leave in the mistakes because the mistakes and the imperfection are just as beautiful as the real thing is my very strongly held belief um, and let's crack on thanks bye reason I asked you to do a podcast so so basically the background is that I spotted you at Froome Independent Market yes. where I had a stand which seems to be like most of my customers like wow this Froome Independent Market is like kind of a big deal which is bizarre because it's so small and cute yeah. but I saw you passing and I know you through through racing cycling and I just I'm, I really hate grabbing well-known people but I wasn't grabbing a well-known people some people would kind of go oh he's guys works for this big racing team I just always wanted to meet you because I was saying to you I really like your, your writing yeah um and I think you take you look at the world and cycling or whatever with a different views so I just thought there's a fella that I really like to talk so I wasn't like going oh you used to be a pro cyclist that's amazing even though I'm really into pro cycling um, Most of my wife's amusement, by the way. She, so we went, we went there that day. Like she basically dragged me there, and because uh, I wanted to do something else, and she she wanted to buy something for herself. And then in the end, like we saw you, and she uh, she, she she was uh, she was most amused. Ended up not buying anything for herself and uh, being frustrated. But she sort of uh, <laughs> you you end up getting a jacket, yeah. and she uh, <laughs> she's kind of like. Huh? Yeah, so um, she was uh, amused. So to set the scene, uh, we've got Lily, my dog, has basically attached herself to you pretty mm. much immediately. Yep. Uh, in my living room. Um, and it's actually been about eight months since I did a podcast for mainly sort of personal reasons, nothing hardcore, just been really, really busy. Um, and I've always wanted to do them properly. 
And so it's really nice to get going again. And so I suppose, you know, we had a chat about what we, I wanted to do with this. But for, I think, reacquainting anyone or anyone's new, the purpose of the podcast is just to... I think something that's missing... So, right, now I'm trying to put this together properly is from as a brand sells really nice jackets that's one part fine great and then the other part is that so I had a breakdown a couple of years ago and I've long identified or believed that men's social system is pretty fucked up it's not um, as good as it used to be I'm not I find it relatively difficult even though I'm fairly extrovert to sort of make friends and I think there's a lot of particularly being English a lot of social barriers and this apologetic thing and when that comes to quite something quite serious like you're you're feeling really awful and you need someone to talk to that's a really serious barrier and basically the the premise was actually the best way for men to talk to each other is in in the pub that was always the social structure that's what I did when I was a teenager when I was younger um and when I was living in London there were so few decent pubs and I was so busy that never happened now when I'm in the UK, sorry, in uh, Somerset, I go to the pub a bit more, but I'm still busy for, you know, just life. But I just I had this thing about the pub and having a pint and being able to talk through stuff. Well, I've actually realised that you can do that anywhere. So the podcast has sort of drifted a little bit. Now we're in my living room having a cup of coffee. Um, and, and essentially, I think it's just a, it's a chat and it can go, I, I'm, I'm interested in you and just talking about life as a whole rather than... Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so from my point of view, and if you Google who you are or someone Googles me, there's going to be certain things you see. I, I am, you know, the creator of a company that did really well and failed. And I am, if you looked at LinkedIn, a consultant in marketing, and I am the founder of Fram. That's essentially me. Well, that's actually not me really that much. Uh, it's part of me, but I'm also a dad and all this other crap. So if you Google you, you are a ex. So it's set the scene because most people aren't in cycling listening to this podcast. Some are, mm. obviously. Um, you are on Google, which is a poor definition of a person, <laughs> a ex-GB racing cyclist who's raced on the continent and has retired and is now part of a very big professional cycling team called EF Education. Is that correct? That's 100% correct. Um, <laughs> but, but, yeah, I mean, by, by no means my entire life history. But, yeah, I mean, that's me, really. Um, what do you think you are? Um, just getting away with it. <laughs> right. You know? Like, um, do you feel you're a chance in your way through life? No, I, I, I think I, I consider myself extremely lucky. Um, like extremely lucky because I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a bike racer. From what age? Um, probably about eleven or twelve. That's, that's when I started racing. That I wanted to do, and I did it. And I'm, you know, I was a professional. I got paid to do it. And then I finished. I sort of came towards the end of my racing career, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I did a master's in writing. Um, and then I was like, right, I want to write. Um, and then I got paid to, to write for a few years. Um, which what, was were you, what were you writing? Um, I, I stayed mostly in the field of cycling. Um, to was that for a ruler? I did quite a lot of uh, um, different... Um, so I freelanced and did, um, you know, all, all sorts of different publications and bits and pieces and then sort of, like, did a few bits of kind of um, 
copywriting and I went into a magazine when I first finished I went into a pro cycling magazine and did mm. a month did a month there but I mean I, I never really had any intention so is that you pee you me I'm going to switch this off it's <laughs> if you need to get something no no it's, uh, it's I was worried it was the dog no the dog's not pinging um, what was I yeah so where was I so you were working for pro cycling and you yeah, were writing. Yeah, so I went there and I did I did a month with them and they offered me a job. I didn't really want to be in an office um, because I I'd never been in one. So was your career up to that point basically trying to be a cyclist? Now you're a cyclist when you're old enough. You know that was what you were doing. Did you had jobs through your cycling career or? Uh, no, I didn't work. Um, I went on to the. What was called, then called the World Class Performance mm-hmm. Programme, which is now, I guess, the GB Academy or something, mm-hmm. when I was 18 and I got paid £6,000 a year, which felt like all the money in the world back wow. then. Um, £500 a month. What was that beginning of the Millennium sort of stuff? It, 2000 was my first year. Right, so I think that's when it all kicked off, actually. Yeah, I, I think it started in 1999. Okay. It was the first funded riders, and I was a junior then, and we finished that. Um, like a junior, I had a good junior year. And then we went on to the program. What was your state of mind when that happened? Were you kind of like, uh, oh my God, I've made it, I'm the big man? Or were you, was you, were you nervous and you had to prove yourself? How does it feel to I think be handed that sort of accolade, I suppose? I, I, I was never really one for kind of enjoying things on the way. Right. Um, because I kind of, I was trying to get somewhere. Like, really working quite hard to get somewhere. So, so when I got that sort of, I went on to that. I was like, yeah, but this is the next step. This is a natural step. Um, I mean, we, we were really lucky because we got funded and people, you know, you could have been as good as me or better five years before and you would have had nothing. Yeah. Um, and there was actually quite a lot of bitterness at the time. I remember, like, doing races and, like, having people complain at us because, oh, you're spoiled. And, um, there was a lot of... Oh, so I, I was racing in the sort of late 80s, early 90s and I stopped because of injury quite young. And I wasn't obviously anywhere near you. I managed to scrape my way into a national championship once and stuffed it up. And that was as close as I got, you know. But I, I was absolutely obsessed by cycling. And it's something I'm interested in, in is, first of all, because I think it's quite an intense and unusual thing to become part of a, a sort of any country's sort of system for a particular sport. But secondly, because I'm interested because I'm, I never got there. But it was, it was my absolute obsession and dream for many, many years. And... Um, and so, but I, knowing what I'm like with the successes I've had, I never enjoyed any of my success because all I wanted was to, I thought, right, shit, I better do something else now. Yeah. I've got to keep going. Yeah, exactly. It, it was always the same, you know, and it's, I kind of always had in my head, it's like, okay, like when, like when you finished racing, then you can like kind of look back and enjoy it. But then I don't do that either because <laughs> now I don't want to dwell on it. Why don't you want to dwell on it? Um, because I think what we're, what, at the time, it's a huge thing in your life. And then when it finishes, it, it kind of... You realise how much life there is afterwards. Like, mm. I remember being young and thinking that, like, OK, well, once, um, you know, Gianni Bugno retires, like, he's, he's, he's just kind of finished. He's just loafing around, like, <laughs> like waiting, you know? And he, he would have been, like, 35, like, younger than me now. Right. And I kind of thought... Because I was so focused on the... on. Was he your big hero? Yeah, when I was young, when I was dead young, he's so cool. He's a dude, yeah. He's so cool. I mean, he's still cool. I mean, he flies, uh, flies helicopters now, <laughs> which is real cool. cool. Um, and, you know, 
I was just interested in the athlete, and then what, what, once that sort of finished, they were just sort of old people. But now I realise that, yeah, well, now I see it differently. It's kind of like that. I still consider myself pretty young, and like that. Well, you must much. be younger than me. Uh, you're 38 now. Right, so, I'm 45. Yeah. I still think I'm 35. Yeah. And I look in the yeah. mirror and go, uh, yeah. what? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I shaved the other day, which took a few years off, so it could be that making me feel. So, so something I remember from when I was, I don't think I was ever cut out to be a racing cyclist for some fairly obvious physiological reasons, mainly because mentally, I, the amount of commitment it takes. And I, I got to uni and basically, like the first year, I was just training and training and training. I literally didn't drink until right at the end of my first year when I started getting injured and I had problems with my back and stuff. And I was like, hang about, I should actually be trying to have sex with ladies yeah. and <laughs> drinking and clubbing and doing all the other stuff. Everyone who lived with me who I was a complete nutter yeah. And they were probably right. And, and then because I was given permission to fall off the wagon because I was injured, I did quite a big way, got really into clubbing and all that comes with that. Mm. Um, and life was probably a lot more fun. Yeah, I mean... But I didn't succeed in my aims. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even go to university. Like, I just went... I went did, did you want it? Uh, not really, no. Um, I think, like... like a, because I went straight onto this world-class performance program. For me, it wasn't even a question. So I, I never had that temptation. And I, I went and I saw my mates. It was weird. I remember going to see my mates who were at uni. And we were living like, uh, in France, four of us. Um, and, you know, like, as an athlete, you, you learn a lot about, like, um, you know, like, like your hygiene and everything was clean and the house was nice. And it's kind of like we lived at quite a high standard for, mm. for young yeah, most of your lads are nasty much money. fuckers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then I, I went to my friend's house at university, like, and I remember we went out and, like, these, they were the same age as us, but these guys, they just had, like, plates. They were in a classic, like, uni house. My, mm. mates, my mates still had cardboard boxes with his clothes and he was taking them out. <laughs> I remember at one point, like, a girl had come back with this, this my mate was trying to sleep with, and she asked him for a glass of water and we sat around the front <laughs> room and he's like, uh, I remember like seeing his dishes and how much mould was in it. I'm like, oh, what's he going to do here? And he sort of went, yeah, okay, all right. And he walked off. Instead of cleaning up, um, like cleaning up a glass, he came back with a saucer <laughs> full of water because it was the only thing he could find. <laughs> what did she do? Lap it like a cat? <laughs> what the hell's going to happen here? She drank it. Fair play, sir. Mm. Um, I can remember when I, I sh- in my second year at Liverpool, when I properly fell off the wagon and become a normal human being, I, um, I lived in a house of 11 people. And, um, and our sort of kitchenette thing was right at the bottom of this huge house in Liverpool on, in Newsham Park. And um, it was great fun, but it was just horrific. And I, I was brought up by my single parent mum and you had to help out you just had to yeah. I would have felt bad not helping out and it's just all pretty obvious stuff and so I uh, could actually do the washing up and I felt it was my duty to do the washing up that was a normal thing to do you know I was independent which is probably you know what living abroad and being a pro cyclist teaches you you have mm. to be independent look after yourself so I turned up at uni able to do washing of clothes and washing up and it used to really really piss me off that a lot of I had a bit of chip on my shoulder about it it was a lot of kids who come straight out and hadn't got a fucking clue how to do anything and I thought Jesus Christ and um, and uh, I can remember because I, I was a lot angrier than I am now is um, 
uh, that um, this house was just, yes, mouldy saucepans and crockery from these lads who shared my house. It was mostly women I lived with. These lads are just piles of crud. It's absolutely horrific. Um, and I just said, if you don't do them tonight, I'm going to throw them out in the morning. The bin's coming. And they went, yeah, yeah, fuck off. So I did. And I took them out in front of them, pans clinking in the morning, and I threw them into the back of the, the truck and I, I asked them to crush them in front of these guys. And it was sort of probably a bit of a dick thing to do, really. <laughs> I was going to say they wouldn't have loved But that. no, they didn't appreciate it. But it pissed me off that much. And that also reminds me of the just that thing of living with other people. Like I've lived with my my wife Emily for twenty three years, and before that I lived in a flat on my own. And uh, I, as soon as I left uni, I was just desperate to live on my own because other people's hygiene, particularly, really got my nerves. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, definitely what put me off. Like th- th- those sort of living conditions, and just you know, um, I just wasn't interested in it at the time. No, it was a different world to me. Um, but you, did you have fun um, living with a load of lads abroad? Uh, yes and no. I mean, the, f- the first six weeks we were in what was a converted garage. So it was like the, the, the team house was three garages, which they changed the like, roller door into like a you know, a glass sort of thing with a door in. And there were bunk beds in, so there were six bunks in there. And four of us in there, and I mean it was the size of a garage, and at the end of it it had like a tiny little two hobs, and then behind that there was a shower, and it was four of us in there for six weeks, and it was like, that was tight and that was hard. And then they eventually moved us. I don't know how they moved us into a, a an, an apartment in uh, in the in sort of in I don't know how you describe it, the quartier. Um, what region of France? Oh, sorry. It was Belgium, wasn't it? No, it was France. Not oh, okay. In uh, in the northwest. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it, it was great. Um, the first year, I think. Yeah, I sort of stopped racing halfway through the year because um, I was knackered, um, and uh, just went and sort of met people and did things, which was good fun. Hmm. Um, was your so your writing had that always been something that came out since you were a kid, or did that come out later? No, like it was actually I was doing a race with John Herity when we were I think I would have been nineteen or something, and he said, "Oh, you should." I don't know why, but he suggested I should write it, like do a write up of it for the British Cycling website, hmm. which I did, and that was well received, and I just kept doing it for there. And you like you know when you do something and you get praised, that would be called content now. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that was it. Um, you know, get praised for something then you enjoy doing it so you do it more um, did you actively want to seek something be- that was different from just racing and training or there was no sort of I just wonder whether it was quite boring or mundane at times and so a sort of outlet or potentially something you could do as a career afterwards were you ever thinking about a career afterwards or not really um, not really it's kind of why I said like you know earlier that I was just getting away with it you know um, it sounds like you just you were all in you basically that was your world and, you, and probably at 19, 20 you're not even thinking beyond that anyway no no I, I kind of yeah that's, I, I don't know what I was thinking um, I can't remember what I was thinking at nineteen twenty, apart from what I was doing at uni at the time yeah. I was pretty lost until I was 30 really not, not in a sort of hardcore way just didn't know what I wanted to do. No, I don't think. Um, I, I mean, I don't think that a lot of, you know, a lot of people do. Um, and you, I think you're actually really lucky if you do end up doing 
what you want to do, which is what I was sort of touched on earlier. Like I've like I've always managed to be able to do what I want to do. Um, and I think like working where I work, I'm actually also surrounded by a lot of people and I meet a lot of people who are in the same situation. Mm. And it's become totally normalised. This sort of idea of like, oh no, like, I, I just want to do this, this is what I should be able to do. But it's actually like, you know, most people don't get to do that. Mm. Um, you mm. know. Do you aware of being quite lucky? Extremely, on? extremely. Like, you know, my old man was a teacher for 30 years and it's like, while he went in with you know, good intentions and, and, and wanted to teach. By the time he finished teaching, like, it, it completely changed. Right. And he, I'm sure he didn't want to be there. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, like, I've got no idea in my head of, like, what it is to be somewhere where I don't want to be for a day. Wow. What, ever? Not really, no. I mean, um, you know, I worked the odd sort of menial job every now and again when I was um, sort of in between times here and there. But not really that much. And I... Do you think that's also because you might be quite an accepting person? Because I don't think... So it's interesting because when we did the sort of preamble to this, I was saying about it's really for me, for me, what I want with From the brand is not to be a perfect brand. I think that being a sort of marketing person, that's my, you know, creating products that are hopefully really good and marketing that engages with people in hopefully a genuine way. I'm very aware that a lot of marketing is bollocks. And it's actually potentially quite corrosive bollocks as well. Um, I'm not sure. I've got an image of corrosive bollocks now. Um, but I'm not sure how that works. But um, so what I wanted with Fram is to have something that talks about real life. And the fact about real life is it's sometimes shit. Mm. But it sounds pretty good so far, which is great. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know... Um, you don't have to have negative stuff in your life. No, like, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I, like, I agree 100%. Nobody sails through life um, with, with, with sort of nothing going on. Um, it's, uh, like, the more you talk to people when, you know, like, when you're young and stuff, you start learning, oh, like, this, like, this has happened to this person and this, and you add it all up, you know, everybody's got something somewhere. So, so on your team that you work for now... What's your job title? Sports director. What does that involve? So basically, I... For the non-cycling listener. I mean, there's, there's two parts to my job. Like, one is sort of running the, the, the staff of the team, which is like the mechanics, the soigneurs, um, the chefs, etc., etc. Kind et of like a general management It's role. just It's just... The more I read about management, it's just like 100% like just a, a totally standard management job with mm-hmm. the same challenges as anything else, just in, in a moving environment. People are sick, people have problems at home, they turn up late. Interpersonal problems yeah. is a massive one, you know, right. like this person's falling out with this person. I mean, we've got a lot of, we've got a lot of different um, nationalities and cultures in the team, which mm-hmm. I find interesting, I, I guess more than you would in in your sort of average job you know you've got a couple of Basques and so this is an American team that has quite a sort of probably one of the most liberal minded more modern sort of viewpoints of any any team I guess yeah I think it's um, you know it, it was found like every team in, in my opinion in cycling because the way they're, they're, they're sort of put together is sort of a reflection of the person who's at the top of it and, and the interesting thing is so something I've seen in myself and other founders I know and I've worked for is every business and in many ways particularly in cycling more than any other sport 
the team or the business reflects the founder. Yeah. And so, for instance, with Volpine, uh, the reflection in me was that it was it was good at clothing and <laughs> you know products, and it was good at marketing and brand. I was recognised for that, but it was bad at finance and operations. It was bad at the nitty gritty, the stuff that underpins it, and that's why it went bust because I didn't mitigate those things well enough. You learn your lesson hindsight. And so now, of course, Fram is heavily mitigated with those things because I work with my best mate who is very good at finance and operations and the nitty-gritty and because we've made it very small, so it's a much safer company. But, sorry, you were saying about EF, is that's reflected. Every team is reflected in its yeah. founder. Um, so uh, Jonathan Bort is our founder, sort of founded the team with this... Um, it was the first team to be sort of specifically anti-doping, um, but didn't take, didn't necessarily take a very, you know, um, easy or popular approach in the. It's quite non-judgmental. Yes, so he basically, you know, accepted riders who, you know, sort of confessed to, you know, ha- having done things in their past and had problems, and you know, even signed riders like Thomas Decker went to the team after you know he'd served a doping ban. And and I think he, that, he got ripped apart yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean, everyone time. got ripped apart. Anyone who was caught for doping, yeah. Big time. And, and, like, you know, those guys just get thrown to the dogs. Um, but, uh, yeah, he founded the team sort of based on that. And, like, these days it's kind of... Um, and he's, he'd miss it doping as well. Yeah. yeah. And, and these days it's... Every team's an anti-doping team. It has to be. Like, like yeah. It's, it's all changed. And so... But this team was actually fundamental in that change happening. Yes, um, it was. It was kind of because obviously my knowledge of pro cycling as an outsider, as a fan, you know, pretty avid. Is it always took quite a big stand first and got a lot of grief for it. And mm. that, I think that liberal mindedness, or especially because I think being an English speaking American team, so it's quite disengaged from the old school sort of mainland European view of the world, really helped. Yeah, big time. And I think it sort of separated the team and for someone like me who was you know I was still a rider back then you sort of looked at it and went wow that's like such a breath of fresh air um, because it the the landscape was different you know um, mm-hmm. to what it is now um, but now the team is, is continuing to sort of try to like break ground I'd say you know um, this year they're looking at you know expanding the way that we take on races, you would have heard about the alternative calendar. Um, so, so for the listen, non-listener, what you're doing is basically pro cycling has an extremely traditional, long-held set of races yeah. that happen at the same time every year, different formats, long tours like the Tour de France and single days, etc. But suddenly there's all these new races like Dirty Kanza, yeah. uh, which got a lot of publicity, which is a very new sort of gravel-based race in the US, which is totally outside this sort of sphere of influence of say something like a Gazetta del Sport or something you know it's kind of from my point of view being a marketing person and being a fan of Rafa and how they expanded I saw what Rafa were doing and then saw seeing what your team are doing in terms of new races and I thought of course that's what they should be doing it's what everyone should be doing because you know cycling so I, I I don't want this to make a cycling podcast I'm just very interested in the way that cycling and what you do reflects on other many other parts of the world and about how people think I think all these are microcosms the same yeah. thing and and I just think that 
cycling is very, very traditional and at times extremely unwelcoming and snobby. Mm. I found that when I was trying to race, I found it incredibly difficult mm. to be accepted in. Um, and, and that really stayed with me. It's why I've always, inclusivity in cycling has been a big deal for me because I never ever saw any women and I found it unbelievably difficult to be accepted because the rules were so specific. Yeah. In fact, there is a thing called the rules, which is now almost beyond parody. It's just rubbish. You know, you... so not wanting to make you blush but you've always been seen as a very sort of anaesthete in cycling and very cool and you've been a model for reference stuff and so by that turn you'd be expected to adhere to the rules very strongly no it's it's strange but they always just always just really got on my nerves just I I, I good (laughs) because they really got on my nerves yeah I mean first and foremost I don't really love rules um, that's no. that's why I chose to ride my bike and live my life the way that I have lived it is because I don't want to be confined by rules. So the, probably the strongest emotion around cycling of many is, is freedom. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so the idea for me of trying to like cap it and tell me what I can and can't do is just, it's, it's absurd. I, I think there's this sort of perverse like, um, the way it used to be was you would, um, nobody would tell you anything you were just supposed to know mm. and if you didn't know you're an idiot and then when you did work it out you looked at the next person instead of helping them you thought you're an idiot because it's that natural know. sort of thing of oh I've, I've jumped wrong ahead of that yep. person now I can look down yep. it's a really shitty thing and I've done it you know of um, I can remember really clearly incredibly clear I can probably remember pretty much every single club run I did initially before I got accepted and I was literally accepted because I got the big hands when I was racing you know when I started racing and I was I don't know 15 or whatever and I was doing club runs and this big hand because all the criterion riders these sort of city centre races were big compared to me and big hand landed on my shoulder and went yep yeah, you're alright <laughs> yeah. and that was it you know and instead of somebody barking at me for eight weeks, suddenly, because I just turned up every week for eight weeks and I was close to tears a lot of the time because I just thought, what am I doing this for? Yeah. And then I was in. And then you get these rules. I can remember because I, I was quite a good time trialist. So that's the sort of aerodynamic races with the helmets and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I wasn't very good at road racing because I, I was very light and I'd get kicked about and I didn't really have very good skills. And uh, So time trialing was good because I was quite fit. And... Um, I can remember talking to the head of my team uh, and uh, I was on quite a good team in Liverpool and I said, I'm saving up to get a disc wheel, an aerodynamic disc wheel. And he said, what's your best time? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm just floating above an hour uh, for on a road bike. And he went, well, until you go under an hour, you can't have a disc wheel because you're not good enough to have one. I said, well, hang on, I'll go under an hour if I get a disc wheel. And he went, no, <laughs> no, you're not allowed. You're not allowed to have good equipment because you're not good enough. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck? So eventually I did, and then I couldn't afford a disc wheel because I was a student and it didn't matter anyway. <laughs> and I can remember thinking, now I've seen that as a club cyclist, you know, when everything changed the previous decade, when suddenly everything changed so fast. There was so much snobbery and people go, oh, look at these blokes, you know, riding four grand bikes, you know, carbon fibre and they're massive fat twats. And I was like, yeah, but what harm's it doing you? Mm. Who cares? Yeah, that's one thing that just like, I mean, that's one thing... I mean, I've got ways that I want to do things, you know, right. like I've got like things I think about when, if I went cycling, I'd have to wear a dress or whatever, but like, I'd never make anybody else adhere to it, you know? The thought of, 
I, some, I once had a guy come up to me in Richmond Park. I was riding to a pop-up I was doing actually in 2012 and I was riding my nice feather handmade bike from Yorkshire and mm-hmm. shiny Campag, Nolo, which is all the nice components. So I keep going into cycling depth. but And then I was wearing my own gear, Volpine gear. So I was basically looked like a, a trendy cyclist, whatever. And uh, this, this guy in full uh, road gear rode up to me and said, um, all the gear, no idea, you fucking prick. And then rode off. So being reasonably fit and also being really fucking angry, I rode back up to him and I just went, right, uh, and I ranted about how I used to race and I got a sports science degree and I've done all this stuff and, you know, how, how, well, who was he to judge? And it, none of this shit mattered anyway because anyone can ride how they want, you know, and I just screamed in his face. So I was listening back to this and I was thinking about the whole thing with anger. So I'm, if you met me, I'm quite a sort of soft, not particularly aggro person. But I'm also a very passionate person and I think that anger is the boiling over of passion uh, and a pain and emotional strain. And, and for some people that can be beating someone up, which is a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, it's a ludicrous thing. And uh, for other people, it can just be getting overly upset about things. And something I see on social media is this sort of boiling it over of anger. And I think that I'm actually not a terribly angry person, but what I'm also not willing to do is um, to back down from things I think are morally wrong, um, because that makes me feel shitty about myself if I just let them go. Um, and it's quite not hard not to get angry about certain things uh, in life because some of them are really unjust. Uh, but anger is a toxic thing. So how do we find this nice point where we, we deal passionately with the important subjects in our lives without getting angry about the stupid stuff? Um, and social media doesn't help. It often comes back to social media. It's such a weird thing we're still trying to work out in the world. Um, kind of like it, kind of hate it. Mm, something else to think about. Right, a little bit of a break. Music, bye. All that is, the, if you boil that down to its essence, all it is is people trying to climb on top of people to make yeah. themselves look better. Whether it's cycling, or I, I bet it happens in football and rugby, or book writing, or whatever it is. Every, some people, unfortunately, have sufficiently... Um, not unhappy enough in their skin that they have to put down other people. And unfortunately, it's just a, an element of humanity, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing I remember, like, uh, I remember coming across a, a friend of mine that I met, and uh, I noticed after a little while he never put anybody down in any way. So it's so easy, like, in conversation, just to, like, talk negatively, like, even, even about your friends, just, like, a little bit. Gossip is fun. Yeah. And, you know, just, like, those little bits where you're, like... Oh, you, you like when, when you actually go back and you like, analyze what you've been saying. It's like, oh no, I was like point scoring to put them down mm. to make myself a bit better. Mm. So like I've, since 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 then, I've like consciously trying not to do it. And it's in the environment that I work in, it's really hard because I think cycling sort of like I would assume I don't know what like the music industry, for example, where you get a lot of people who the the talent and the output is is not too dissimilar. So, so what, what sort of puts someone, or, you know, acting, what puts someone ahead of somebody else? Is it the fact, you know, you've got, up here you've got this bunch that are like just 
unbelievable. Mm. They're going to make it. And in, in the middle, you've got loads and loads and loads who can make it or not make it based on you know, someone's decision or a whim or this or that. So you get this really sort of catty culture of putting other people down, you know. And you're riding constantly with the people who could take, in inverted commas, a yep. win away from you or make a decision that they crash in front of you or something. And those are, it's a bit like, you know, somebody spilling coffee on your computer at the a <laughs> desk. You know, it's like, oh, for fuck's sake, you've just ruined all my spreadsheets. Yeah, and, and then you, you could be done. But I think, like, people get... And I did it like like when I finished my racing career. It's like I, God, I, I I talk too much negatively about people because I'm stuck in this mindset of I'm trying to beat everyone. Right. I'm trying to be ahead of everyone. Um, and like I, I try not to do it. Um, and, I, and I love it when I meet people who just can't just don't need to say anything bad about anybody else because they're just fine. And, and that you immediately get a sense of trust from those people. Like I've always found with gossip that anyone who gossips, you just know you're going to be gossiped about. Try living in Italy. <laughs> right. You know? That's, that's why I couldn't live in Italy anymore. I had to leave. When did you, what, what period did you live in Italy? Um, 2000, end of 2003 to 2006. Where, where did you live? I was in Tuscany for two years and Como for a year. Um, wow, I've ridden around Como, it's amazing. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, like, I found, I found Tuscany, um, I, I preferred Tuscany. Okay. I, got, I met a lot more people and... Um, Como's posher. Yeah, yeah. Mm. We lived just uh, just just off the lake. I mean, it was cool, but like it's quite touristy and mm -hmm. um, it was a little bit cold. Do you speak the language? Yeah, I learned Italian. I learned Italian. So you got some French and Italian, and yeah, does that yeah. help you with your day job? Yeah, big time. Right. Um, I actually learned Italian. I think in like two weeks. <laughs> like, um, is that an ability? Then it must be. Well, I went there, and so I, I'd learned French, and then I went to Italy without. I got a contract, so I want to come here. Yep, cool. I went there, I didn't know a word. And then I went out on, I think the second weekend I was there, and I met a girl in a nightclub and got my friend who did speak Italian to get her number. Hmm. And then we, I think that was Friday, and so I sent her a text message on Saturday. I got my friend to like write it out. Do you want to meet up for a drink? And she said, yeah, let's meet tomorrow. I was like, no, no, Monday. And then I sat down and learned Italian enough to go on a date with her on the Monday. Wow. That's the power of... Uh, Commitment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and uh, else, yeah. the allure of, uh, yeah. of a good woman, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was, I, I found that a really easy one. But I've started on Spanish now because it's... I like Spanish. Yeah, it's uh, quite hard to learn when you speak Italian. I, I find it hard to learn because I speak Italian. It's so I close, there's Latin languages. Yeah. It's so close. Yeah. And I just drop into the Italian and you're not quite right. So. I... I um, I, I should be good at French because of my French roots and everyone in my family speaks fluent French apart from me just because my mum... I, I don't know if this is an urban myth. I must check with my mum, but she said to me when I was quite young, would you rather learn French or get into science? And I just said, I'm not into, I'm not into languages. I want to do this. I really regret that now. I was, my mum was quite laissez-faire. <laughs> um, and uh, would just let me do the things I was into. Yep. So uh, I didn't learn French, which is a mistake. So I started learning Spanish. I used to work at... Um, Getty Images and they, they just free spread Spanish lessons and uh, so I started, started learning there and I just really liked it and I went to Argentina on holiday with Emily once and I really liked Argentina as a country but I particularly liked it because the language is spoken in almost a Germanic way they break oh, out really? the words it's, it's much clearer more clearly enunciated with of course the Spanish of course it sort of flows man I mean listen to Spanish I have Spanish radio on at home now just so I like you start to soak it up and just like the speed of the sentences. 
and just totally un- like you said, unbroken. it's bonkers. It's insane. I, 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 you know, I can remember being in these lessons and learning this stuff, and then hearing it said and just going, "Oh my God, I'm going to get destroyed. <laughs> How am I going to do this?" And I have that sort of, you know, I think most people have it when you're trying to speak a language of thinking you're going to make a fool of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. But you just have to crack on. You do. I remember someone telling me that, like, when you want to learn, when you want to speak Italian, and you go to do it for the first time in public, you just have to like do it with, like, you're doing a stupid impression of an Italian, like, like, uh, you know, caricature or over. Throw your hands around and yeah. Right. And I did it. I mean, I was going. Went to a framing shop and I'm like, right, I'm going to speak Italian now. Went to the framing shop and just went for it, and then it worked. Nobody batted an eyelid. So. Yeah. What um, so so I'm pretty scared of making a fool of myself in social situations. Um, what what are you scared of? Um, um, I think with me, um, yeah, I, I don't like to like. I had this discussion with a mate last night actually. He was a chef, and it's like it, the older you get, the harder it is for you to have people around you see that you don't know what you're doing. Right. Um, you know, so like being, if I was to go with my girlfriend, and this is why I haven't ever gone skiing, like, because the skiing instructors... You're married though, aren't you? Yeah, wife, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Did you see the, uh, you haven't seen that clip of a, there's an Australian AFL player who, at the end of a game, is being interviewed, and he says, oh, I just really want to thank my wife and my girlfriend. And he's like, <laughs> yours is what he said. And he's like, oh, no, 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 I mean, my wife, I love my wife, I love my wife so much. And he just goes, it's just... Oh, my God, he's just digging himself further in. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I've never taken a partner of mine to go skiing because the ski instructor's 100% going to sleep with your girlfriend because you're going to look like an idiot the whole right. time and they're going to look great. Um, right. So, so you know, that, that, that type of situation where you're put into something where you really don't know what you're doing, um, by the same token, you have to do that, you know, in life. Um, so the big change for me, it's, so I used to be quite a... So my mum says I was born extrovert, and then I got, you know, it's not a big sub-story, but I got badly bullied at school, and I became a very introverted, very quiet person. And then I became quite embittered as a teenager. I was quite angry at the world for all that. And, um, and then I went to uni, and basically... Uni was really good, obviously, more than anything, it would forget that I learnt about, you know, biorhythms and circadian rhythms, all that crap, because I did sports science. It was, I basically, I learnt to be a grown-up to a reasonable degree. And what I learnt was everyone has shit. Mm. Everyone has been through something to some degree. Almost you could see that if they happen, they're going to, because it just statistically makes sense. And, and then the re- where I really grew up was when I realised that... I was meeting people in Manchester when I was in clubbing and helping run a club there. That I was meeting people who'd been through way worse shit, way, 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 way worse shit than I had, and were, were making something of their lives. And basically, it was my choice. The world doesn't owe you anything. There isn't some benevolent. I don't. I'm a total atheist, and but not an aggressive atheist. You know, I find religions fascinating, but I think that there isn't some malevolent God who's saying, oh, you've had a hard time, so here's some extra points. Everyone's got their shit. So, you know, um, you just have just spotted the amount of hair that Lily's put on your black jeans. (laughs) Sorry about that. It's quite all right. Um, But, um, so I I thought, I'd better crack on. And in that instant, within months, I'd met my partner of 23 Mm. years, Emma Lou, because I became a positive, go-getting person. 
And so since then, I've always, you know, that cliche of feel the fear and do it anyway is incredibly important because fear is such, such, mostly such bullshit. Yeah. Um, and I just see so many people, unfortunately, including people close to me, who've just been crushed and held back by fear. And it just, it's not necessarily that easy, but you just got to put that foot in front. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's a tricky thing. I think, you know, if you, if you sort of, if you, it can be hard to push yourself, you know. It can be really hard, you know, because as an adult, you just don't need to do stuff. Like I was always a, a terrible swimmer, and I cyclists t- usually are. Uh, but I, I told myself, oh, no, I am a bad swimmer. Right. And I thought about it one day. I'm like, hang on a minute. Like, I can't physically be a bad swimmer. Mm. I thought back to it, and like, like when I was a little little kid, I think we were at the swimming pool, and I fell in, fell in, or went under water for quite a long time. And what felt like forever. Mum mm. came and got me. Mum was upstairs actually in a cafe, and the lifeguard who was giving the swim lessons hadn't noticed me going. Oh, and she was like, um, and like, I just never liked swimming. So then I didn't mm. do it. I thought back and I'm like, like, I've stopped myself being better at swimming basically by telling myself I'm not good at it. Why do I tell myself I'm not good at it? It's because I don't do it. Right. So it's like, right, just make yourself go swimming. Of course you can swim. Mm. Like, mm. you know, you don't lack anything. Or I always think if they, if they can do it, I must be able to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's that, that's a really good attitude. And it's easy to say, you know, when you're sat around going, oh, yeah. But, like, it's, it's a lot harder to do, you know. I, I, one of the scariest parts of my life is, is be, about to become a parent. It's interesting because I just had friends, Kirsten and Stu, around just before you, you came and um, they, they are expecting their second child. And I can remember the terror of about to being a father because I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing i don't know what to do and, you know and then all that me and Emma used to say was if billions of other people mm. have done it surely we should be able to do it yeah. you know we've got our first one coming in august oh wow it's like, yeah it's like basically in the situation where i keep saying to george exactly the same thing i'm like this happens all the time it's the most natural thing in the world and people do it it's the intensity of it yeah that, that's yeah. what it is it's uh yeah, it's gonna be interesting wow so she must be quite big now just, just getting big. I think like, like a month ago, she wouldn't, you barely would have noticed. Right. Now, and now she's just. No, I didn't notice when I met her a yeah. few weeks ago. So. Yeah, she, I mean, she's, she, she's still got a bit to go. I think, unfortunately. Are you um, ex- excited, nervous? Yeah, excited, really excited. Um, I think, um, it's, it's interesting because it's, a, so I'm 38 and George is 33. She's by no means old, and and these days it's I think. More and more common people. Oh, she's almost young age. now, by most standards in the UK. Yeah, but we've had sort of ten years more of like good quality living, addicted mm. to our freedom and disposable income. Instead of doing it the other way around, as as my sort of parents' generation did it, which was like you're twenty something, mm. you have kids, you have got no money, and then eventually, like at thirty eight, yeah. suddenly your kids are leaving. Yeah, which is yeah. mad to think of now. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you've got your time to do what basically we've been doing for the last ten years. Um, so that's it's it's going to be interesting because, I mean, I think both of us will be you know committed to bringing giving the kid what it needs you know, um, but also trying to work out a way where the the kid doesn't become the only thing. You know, You've got to stay who you are. Yeah. And it is really easy to get that. That can almost get subsumed into the sort of yeah. super machine of the 
the baby, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I see it, you know, uh, when people sort of have kids and then it's like, they just shut down and like, yeah, and just, here's the kid, look, it's just like all just looking at this kid. It's like, a kid just thinks that it is the, you know. A, a kid will absorb what it is given to absorb. So, so, so it, everyone gives you advice about being a parent. It's really interesting, you know, your, so I became a dad at 39. And um, so me and Emily have been together at that point, I suppose we've been together, what, 20, 17 years, most of which in London. We'd have very good incomes most of the time, not mm. always. Had a lot of fun, lot, both very independent people, mm. always enjoyed time away from each other and together. And very urban, you know, really enjoying our culture, going out, you know, just doing yeah. stuff. And, and then to an extent, I, I sort of either really well timed it or badly timed it everything was very we're always real planners so we planned when we were going to have a child and to our amazement we had a child quite easily because I know so many couples have found it difficult like most of my friends have probably had to go through IVF have either been successful or not successful and the horrors that come with that because IVF is is grim and I'm sure we all know people and so we were definitely not presuming to be able to have kids I couldn't believe that we were pregnant you know and um, but we very clearly planned that and then I'd started my first business and it was very intense and basically conceived Miller my son on the day that we launched Volpine which is I'm sure there's lots of psychological stuff you can dig into that and then you know he was born in the beginning of Volpine and um so so these two babies essentially and it, it, it actually makes you feel a bit sick talking about it now as Volpine was my second baby because that's Total bullshit. It's a really facile way of looking at things, and especially when you realise it's just a business. It was clearly more than that to me at the time, which is good and bad. But but these two things happening suddenly, your world just shuts down. It's basically two parts of my world. That is, I have a baby, and I have a business, and I've got to split my time between those two things. And I haven't said anything about personal interests, mm. my wife, cycling, anything like that. And there wasn't really room for that, and so. Luckily, I had a business that was very much me, so I could sort of live out my independence through that. But um, I think it was particularly hard for Emma Lou, and it's often hard for, for mums if they're at home, because you can feel your, yourself sort of being diluted mm. by the intensity, just the drudgery of, especially a very young baby, and you're yeah. very tired. Yeah. I think that's why, I, I, you know, apart from hormonal reasons, why a lot of mums... I have postnatal depression because suddenly it's like, well, shit, all I am is a, I'm just this machine that wipes and yeah, cleans and feeds. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think the biggest help, sorry, from a, as a father is to try and balance that almost. Yeah. It's the, that's an interesting one. I mean, I think with, with my job, it's going to get, it's hard for you because you're away a lot, I guess. Yeah. So I do, I, I'm, I'm away for, not too much of the time, but when I do go away, like I mean, obviously we do a grand tour. That's th- that's basically four weeks for us um, on on the sort of non-rider side because um, we're there for a bit longer. I assume you're not doing the tour of Spain. No, no, not that this year. That time. No, <laughs> no, I think I, I've got a tour of Britain after after she's born, mm. and then um, which which is a week, which is kind of like okay, but I think. Um, yeah, at the start of the year in January, I'm away for a month with the Tour Down Under and various races and so on and so forth. So that's a harder time, but I think 
you know, for, we're really lucky in Bristol, and I think Bristol's a great city. Like, we've got really good friends there. Everything's really close, and uh, it's quite it's quite a good sense of community in Bristol. Um, and there's a lot of people around. Um, so, you know, I, I think... You've got to live your life. I think this is, goes back to your original point, is you've got to be who you are. And I think also, it sounds like your, your job, you get time on and off in quite big chunks. Yeah. So that also has its own advantages because, you know, rather than the classic thing, which is basically doing the nine-to-five, travelling, you know, and not being around and been there for bedtime and feet at night, you know, you could actually be there for quite significant chunks yeah. as well as not being there. So that's sort of, you know, a different mix. And quite frankly, in a way, as long as you're not doing anything bad, then you, you've got to do what you do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, you know, it, it would be great because like you said, being at home, I sit at home. When I'm at home, I'm at home. And that, that, that's really nice. So and she had to give up her work. So, so my wife's Australian and she works sort of for her family business in Australia, but she does that sort of from our house in England. How long has she been here for? Ten years, nine years. So, right. so you met in the UK? We, you know, we go backwards and forwards every year. All right. So we've got a house um, here and then we go and we stay in, um, we've got a house in Melbourne. Um, so that's something else I, I noticed when I met you is you have quite a sort of southern hemisphere accent. Yes. That's my... Uh, so you're from, from Cornwall? From Penzance, originally. Um, I went there for a holiday last summer. I loved it. Penzance has uh, gone downhill a little bit these days, unfortunately. In what respect? Um, it's the end of the train line. And I think people get on the train and get off down there with nowhere else to go. Um, there's a okay. lot of... Um, I think it's like the highest sort of methadone um, per capita, usually Jeez. per capita in, in Britain. Um, still a nice place. Right. Um, I just mean the town itself. I think I, I, I don't usually do much research when I do podcasts, either because I know the person already, in your case I, I didn't, but I don't like to have preconceived ideas. Um, and I like, I, I'm interested in the fact of just picking stuff up in the ether. But I did read that, you know, you love riding around the roads around yeah. Cornwall. It's my, yeah. I, I, I They're like pretty it. full on. They're hard, but there's, I mean, there's one particular loop that I do that goes sort of Penzance to Land's End and then back along the coast road. Mm. To St Ives, through Zena to St Ives, mm. um, which is, I did that last summer. Yeah, yeah it's lovely. It's amazing. It, and the fog that comes in all the time. And I used to do it twice when I was training. It, it would take me about the full thing. I could do it in five hours if I did it twice. And I, I, I did it three weeks straight. So one day I'd go to do it one way, one day I'd do it the next day. But like when you're next to the sea, you change every day. Right. Like it's never the same. Yeah. Um, and and you, when you're along that coast road, you're just looking out, and it's like you can see rain showers miles. I did a, did a climb. I didn't even realise I was doing it until I was doing it. Otherwise, I probably would have avoided it. It was coming out of Mausel and yep. or Mousehold. Yeah. Mausel. Yeah. And uh, it's, I think it's climbed the west out of Mausel. It's incredibly steep. Another one. And I was doing it, and people were literally looking at me, going, "You're joking. You're going to do this." And I really hate steep climbs, or I did until I moved here. And Bath is very similar; it's very steep around here. And um, and I've sort of just learnt to just grind away and get them done. But I can remember thinking on this climb, "Don't be psyched out. Just keep on going. Keep on going. You've got to finish. You've got to, all these tourists are looking at you. You've got to do it. Um, you know." And I'd styled it out or not, as the case may be. Uh, I, I I love it. I mean, the thing is, they're so short there that 
back there steep, but they're going to end quickly, mm. and then like you can recover and then do it again. So going, so something I've had a little compartment at the back of my head for oh, twenty minutes is about your team and about its attitude to making mistakes essentially and about realness so something I was really affected by last summer was when a rider a Canadian rider called Rusty Woods um, he 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 lost his baby mm, yeah. and he mentioned that when he, he, he did he win a stage one of the stages of world yeah. yeah so and, and I ended up in tears and I think a lot of people were really affected by that and it, it made me think I thought I think one of the aspects is simply because the thought of having losing a child is, is such a horrific and intense thought for most people's obviously parents um, and it's very very relatable but the other thing is it's quite shocking to hear that in cycling mm. to hear any sort of personal stuff like like something I've talked to journalists in cycling about in the past just in passing is I could the only gay cyclist I can think of who's a man there's plenty of out gay women but only gay and I'm, I'm, I'm not fishing at all but I'm, what I'm fascinated by and shocked and and horrified by it, is the only awareness of any gay cyclist ever is Graham Mowbray, mm. who, who was really fucked up by mm. denying that to himself, not being able to talk about it, and now he's openly gay. And I just think there have to be gay cyclists. But we're not hearing about, not because we should do, not because we should be forcing people to talk about that, because there has to be some sort of barrier, you know, toxic barrier to that. Yeah, I, I think... Um... I was actually um, watching the Eurosport coverage of the Giro the other day, and Buddy Wiggins was talking, and he was talking about how 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 basically and he summed it up really well about how you you basically you're putting on a suit of armor every day, and, mm. and you don't want to show any weakness. Mm. Like the whole of cycling is you not showing any weakness. Now, uh, I think that anything. I think that cycling is quite closed-minded, and anything out of the ordinary. It's a very traditional sport. Anything out of the ordinary, showing any weakness, showing you're different in any way, um, would be seen as would be seen wrongly, uh, as kind of like a maybe not by everybody else, but maybe by the individual, right. as like um, something maybe, to pick at, or not so much to pick at. Um, I, I, it's 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 strange because. You do spend a lot of time feeling like you have to defend yourself, you know, like um, f- for whoever you are, and and that doesn't sound like a very good. No, I don't think it is. And and, and cycling, so I mean, it's changing now, but it, it it was it was such a small-minded, like shitty sort of boys' club, you know. Um, less and less so, like as, as as more and more sort of nations and different types of people have, have broke, broken their way in but you know in the 80s when it was just sort of this tiny little European sport although I must well it must have been on in terms of soccer, compared to soccer it was massive but for us because for me tiny in the UK it was, UK it was tiny it was a kind of almost like a joke sport whereas in Europe it's huge yeah when I, when I say tiny I mean um when you think of the pool of people that were doing it, okay, yeah, it yeah, was, yeah. It, it was really small. So you've got like a like a a really sort of s- strong identity for what a cyclist is, mm-hmm. based on very few ingredients, right? Um, kind of two hundred people almost. Yeah, uh, uh, and then that sort of 
that's it. And it, it, it was so hard to break in that everybody, like, I think just sort of stopped trying to do it their own way. Just like said, all right, okay, these are the fucking rules. Let's just get along with it and get them done. There's you know? such a weight of expectation and tradition and, you know, you've, you're trying so hard and everything else that why fight against yeah. the system? Yeah, so, so, so why, you know... But now it's changing, the sport's changing. I think the world's changing. I mean, it is, it's a, it's a different place. Um, like, quote me, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but like I remember being a young kid and going, oh, I wonder if there's any gay football players. Yeah. Because you just didn't know about them. Like, you know. And I think cycling's just sort of Do back. you ever remember what happened to Justin Fashnew? Um, so he was a forest, yes. I remember, because he was a forest player, and I'm from Nottingham, so I support Nottingham Forest. And um, yeah, he basically... Cluffy bullied him really badly. His own brother was awful to him, um, John Fashnew, and he topped himself. Yes, yeah, I do you know, remember. He, and essentially that's hung over football for decades since, mm. and sport, I mm. guess. Well, it should do. I mean, that's tragic. And I think, you know, uh, I think... I, I think with, with sort of like... Cycling's getting like a, a wider, it's getting more aware. Um, it's okay to be, you know, yourself now. I mean, look at um, athletes now, you know, riders are completely different. They don't feel like they have to conform to this mm. or that. They're, you know, especially in our team, you know, our guys come. Yeah, well, like, you're the definition of that. Yeah. Uh, take a guy like, you know, Mike Woods who goes for a run on a rest day. Like, Oh, really? not, no, not on a rest day, but like when he's at home, like he might okay. go and. I mean, he's and, next and that would have been like sacrilege. It, it, would, <laughs> it, it would blow people's mind, right? Like, what the hell is this guy? You can't do that. He can. He gets along just fine, you know. He's doing um, all right. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, all, all, all those little things are starting to change. And Taylor Finney is very strong personality. Yeah. Um, it, there's a lot of per- different yeah. personalities in there and, um, and that really shows and I'm really fascinated by this because I think that so for instance I see in you know the British riders I've always seen quite an intellectual bunch not necessarily like a real thinky bookish bunch but so like Wiggins is a really intelligent bloke um, and and Grant Thomas really funny intelligent there's, and 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 it's interesting because when I grew up I, it was defined as work cycling so I'm a I'm a soft uh, lower middle class um, sort of bookish thoughtful man and boy as well and and suddenly I'm trying to get into a very tough almost brutal working class sport that's how it felt in the mid eighties when I started. And part of the reason I was so determined to do that is because I wanted to prove to myself I could do it because it was so completely different from everything that I was. And, um, and I think maybe one of the reasons it took me a while to get accepted because I was, from where I grew up in, in Nottinghamshire, I was quite posh. I sounded yeah. posh, even though I wasn't. <laughs> and, um, and, of course, it's shifted now. And, of course, in Britain, you have this weird thing that cycling is seen as is a, is a middle-class, expensive sport. Look at the price point of entry. Right. It's, it's insane. Um... Yeah, I, I, I've seen it turn fully on its head, as you know, as have you, um, which is kind of really strange. Um, I think it, I, th- I think it will do more and more in Europe. Like that sort of traditional, it's a you know, it's a way out. It, it's a way out. 
it's kind of going. Um, I, th- I think the South Americans still have that. Yeah. You know, you see that with these young kids from, you know, um, Colombia and different um, sort of South American countries. They are, they're not joking, man. Mm. You know? It's not a vocation. No. It's I, I, I remember as well we had, when we, when we were racing, we were racing against, um, like in, in 2009, we were racing against this um, the Iranian team and like there's this notorious team from Iran it's Tabriz Petrochemical okay and um, they've raced on the Asian circuit quite a lot and I did a few sort of races over there so that's like you know um, Tour of Japan and all these tours in China and stuff and they and they win absolutely everything for whatever reason they're they're winning you know um, all these guys that I knew kind of sat back and went, oh yeah, they're just cheating. They're just beating us because they're cheating. And it's like, right, okay, they might be. But actually, the reason they're beating you guys mm. is these guys are like 32, 33-year-old men mm. who are racing for their lives still. Like, there's, like, like we're just a bunch of 25-year-old, 26-year-old blokes who kind of do this because it's, a, you know... It's like living a fantasy. Yeah, I mean... Like, we, we we were in no way desperate to be at those races to be or to be like taking that prize money it's like you get that prize money it's like plus minus go and buy yourself something nice mm-hmm. whereas these guys you could see and it's like they're just hard hungry hungry people totally different um, from from a different background and different situation and, and when you're back to the wall you, your physiology your yeah. psychology is completely different yeah I, I, I just remember feeling like just this like spoiled brat really you know because you didn't as much as you wanted to do well you didn't need to do well mm. you know yeah. um, so what do you want to so what would you so, so what I'm really interested in is your writing because I'm really interested in creativity and it's the first thing that I saw so I was particularly interested in you with uh, so I, I read your your book you did um uh did you ghost that, or was it a sort of official thing? Uh, so I've forgotten his name. Oh, Charlie Vigelius. Yes, who, Charlie Vigelius. Who I now work with. Um, he's also a sports director at EF. Um, so I, I mean, I, I, I wrote it basically. I mean, a co-writer would be probably the most accurate, right. um, but for whatever reason, that didn't go in the official title. Um, but yeah. And would you, so so everyone always wants to do other stuff in their lives. So um, what I want to do is I want to ride around Japan nice. <laughs> on my bicycle. You know, bikes have always been a big part of my life and I don't cycle enough. And um, I would love to do a lot more cooking, especially Asian cooking. Mm. It's little things. I think I'm able to do a great deal in my life, you know, um, that, and I'm very lucky. Although... <laughs> I could go off on one about creating your own luck and, you know, I've earned all this and all this kind of stuff. But, but that's that's great that I've got, basically. I'm married, I'm in love, I've got kids, you know, I've got a house, I've got a business, I've got a bike I can ride, you know, it's pretty fucking amazing. Yep. And when, so two years ago when I had a breakdown and my business went bust, I kept telling myself, I'm unbelievably lucky. Mm-hmm. You know, I do not have to worry about my children's, health and dying of horrible diseases i do not need to worry about the social system catching me even if it's not as good as it used to be and you know all this kind of stuff and so and i'm white and 
you know, in the UK and that affords me specific advantages that I didn't earn. And so I should be really fucking grateful, even though chemically at the time you don't feel like that because you can't feel like that. It's not your fault if you feel like shit. So here's an important point about depression is um, something I didn't fully recognise until I had depression a couple of years ago is that you don't get to choose. There isn't logic. Um, logic can help in a progressively helping you feel better, you know, putting things into context. But when you have a very depressed person, particularly potentially even suicidal, you can't just say, hey, come on, mate. I mean, fucking hell, it's not that bad because it's chemistry. You know, it, it, you can't just weigh it up uh, and make someone feel better and sort of give them a slap around the face and say, for fuck's sake, Jesus, look at hear yourself. And so people are always amazed and shocked and sometimes disgusted that famous people, very rich people, um, kill themselves, you know, in, in the media. And they think, well, he had everything. It doesn't matter. It's not about that. You could argue that, of course, money doesn't buy happiness, but that's a separate argument. Anyone can be depressed Uh, it it is not their fault Uh, and so if you've never been depressed please don't judge people and think oh they're just being they just you know selfish or asking for more and more and for god's sake you know it is a chemical thing that's happened to them and they need help to get out of it they cannot see the logic i could not see the logic i knew where the logic was i knew what the logical arguments were but i couldn't help the way i felt um, I think that's an important thing to say. Hopefully that was not too inexpertly expressed. What would you love to be able to be doing? I'm sort of nudging at writing. <laughs> right, <laughs> if yeah. you could do other things, because you've got a busy yeah. life. Yeah, I do. I mean, like, since I started doing this job at this level, it's it's... It's really knocked the writing on the head, right? Because I'm just not in that um, creative headspace at all mm-hmm. anymore. And it's like a, it's like a muscle. You stop exercising it. It's mm-hmm. like now if I sit down to do something. So I was doing like bits and pieces for magazines, but it was taking me so long to get something done. You've got to restart the engine. Yeah, because I was so, and I was never happy with what I was doing. Whereas when I was writing, I used to try and do like a thousand words a day, whether they got published, whether they went on a blog or whatever, mm-hmm. just because it's like right, that's. You, that, 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 that's your exercise mm-hmm. kind of thing and then it, it flowed much easier um, I, I love writing I think I mean good writing is just clear thinking right hmm. so what I had when I was writing was the, the, the time in the day to th- put my thoughts in order as I wanted to explain them um, I used to do the way that it worked for me with writing was I, let's say I got given um, uh, a commission to write for a, a piece about something. I'd get all that information for whatever I was writing about. I'd look at it, go to bed, get up eight o'clock in the morning, go for a bike ride. And at some point during that bike ride, I'd, some a sentence would come into my head mm-hmm. in, in shape. Mm-hmm. And you go, right, OK, that's what I'm going to hang it all on. And then I go home and start working. Mm. Um, and I obviously, like being on the bike, basically just it's like you know, people might go and might get in the shower. That's another place where you just get ideas because doing the dishes because you switch yeah. off and you start doing something. It, it's so autumn. I mean, I've ridden a bike for 
God knows how long, 25 years or something. So it's so automatic to me. Your brain's got a bit of time to think. And I love that. Like, that's my, like, I, I really, really enjoyed doing that. Um, and, I, you know, if, I kind of think to myself, you know, if, 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 if I had all the money in the world, what would I do? Yeah. Um, and I, my life would probably be pretty similar, <laughs> you know. Um, I, I've met a lot of really rich people and they don't seem outrageously happy to me. No, no. I mean... It, it How much further can you get? You it, know? It, yeah, it, it depends what you have to do to get it, doesn't it? You know. Mm. Well, I know now that if I wanted to grow a, a, a very fast-growing, very big multinational corporation, I would basically have to give up most of the rest of my life. Mm. Entrepreneur divorce rates, you know, breakdown rates, all this mm. kind of stuff are extremely high because everyone thinks that being an entrepreneur is this extremely glamorous life because they look at Jeff Bezos and, you know, and he would have sacrificed a lot. Uh, and they just think, oh, it's riding around in jets eating sushi and hanging out on yachts. And that's an incredibly small number of people, probably also the same very successful pro cyclists. Um, it's a tiny fraction. And at the time I was obsessed with, I've got to find out if I can do it. And I found out I can't do it, and that's okay with me. And actually, I'm quite pretty happy with that. Now, what I'm trying to find out is if I can create a business that supports my family. Yeah. So I don't have to do the thing that I've always been bad at, which is working within a corporate environment, you know, um, because I think, like you, I, I don't like rules, not because I want to break them, but because quite often they're wrong. Mm-hmm. There's always a different way of doing something. And I'm just too independent, I think. What I really like doing is helping people, uh, because I'd really like people to understand that, you know, being an entrepreneur is pretty hard and you shouldn't do it unless you're prepared for X, Y, Z. So I like that aspect. But, um, and that, I suppose, you know, it's the mind thing or whatever. But I think, yeah, if I was, in, I, I think, I often say to Emily, we are rich. By a sort of classic British definition of rich, I'm not rich. I live a nice middle-class life, but, um, but I'm not, like, worth tens of millions, if I was worth tens of millions, what would I do? I would like to think that the thing I really want to do, the thing I fantasise about that I can't do, is I would go and live in a hut on top of a mountain in Norway and I'd write a book. I'd just ride my bike and write a book. That's all I'd do. Nice. Uh, you know, with nobody. I wouldn't see anyone for months. I'd do some press-ups and I'd have this sort of monk-like attitude to exercise and to um, writing, yep. to creativity and exercise. The, the two things I, I love... I, and I would end up missing, because I don't always miss my kids and my wife all the time. I do often, but I'm quite independent as well. But I would end up really, really missing my family and be extremely happy to see them again. And it would be another sort of recentering of my life. And then I'd probably never do that again. Just, yeah. That would just be like, I've itched that scratch. But it's a scratch that's been there for about eight years. <laughs> so it must mean something. Yeah. Yeah, writing a book's an interesting one. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly isolating. That's one thing I found hard about writing. I think you've got to have isolation by the sounds of things. Yeah, I, I found it hard about, about writing, um, which is like, you know, it, it completely isolates you. And then, it, especially being a freelance writer, you, you end up, like, always working. So you're never out doing anything. So you're never living. So you've, you, you've got less and less... Um, uh, less and less life to kind of put into it Mm. so what makes interesting writing is the way that you know you might see something or you might have been somewhere or done something Mm. um, and see things not just kind of like read about them and talk about them 
from this like from sitting in your sort of office um, which is hard you, you have to do enough living to to write well um, but then you have to be totally isolated when you actually come to doing the writing mm. so you know it's a it's, it's a contradiction yeah it is it is so you know pe- people who manage to make like a successful living out of out of writing sort of creatively and and living well that's uh that's that's incredible right but i mean those are the you know the ones all the way up here tiny, tiny so few and far between i um i think the the least worst writing i've done some writing just blogs and stuff and i wrote a blog it was supposed to be a blog for the Volpine website and then I ran it past Peter Walker of The Guardian and he said, I'd like to put this on The Guardian website. And I kind of knew that, it, for me, it was quite well written. And But the reason I think it was good is because I've long held, had, long had this um, very strong middle opinion about helmets and cycling so mm. so in cycling helmets are a toxic issue mm. and you know people get shouting at each other on twitter about you should wear a helmet you know we don't need to wear a helmet and all this kind of stuff and you know there's a big change of bro cycling about wearing helmets and stuff and basically my view about so, so i developed this very clear view about helmets and that was why are we shouting at each other about this stuff? Mm. You know, and but, but usually what happens, you know, in a world of clickbait and the media is that you've got sides. And I think we could go, talk about how this has changed the world and it's fucking up politics and all this kind of stuff. And it's true, you know, everything's polarising yep. because that's how the media works. That's how social media works. And actually, I'd much rather be in the middle. I like the middle. I like the compromise space because that's a fair and it's a kind and a decent space rather than just saying, this is my opinion, fuck you. This is why I'm sitting and I'm going to stay, you know, because that's a terrible attitude. Anyway, so with helmets, my attitude is I wear a helmet because most of the time I'm riding around and potentially going quite quickly or whatever. And I've all, I used to race. And so I just feel weird not wearing a helmet. I've also not worn a helmet on a road ride and thought it was pretty nice because it just feels quite free. So I'm not going to judge anyone. I would never do what I've seen people who do on a road ride, see a guy with a helmet and go, well, you're a dick, you should be wearing a helmet because it's his life. Mm. Um, and then on the other side of the scale, um, I, I, despite being quite a creative, emotive, per, emotional person, is I, I like logic. And the logic states that if a huge number of people give up cycling because they don't like yep. wearing helmets, as has happened in Australia, Australian cycling has dropped because they, they brought in compulsory helmets, then we're killing people. 110 people die cycling in the UK every year, roughly, every year, which is a terrible thing. But hundreds of thousands of people die every year from sedentary lifestyles. Yeah, I mean, I had this exact... You know, I'm of a similar opinion to yourself. And I've, you know, um, I've... I mean, I've ridden for years without a helmet. I never never trained in one when I was racing, Mm. ever. Um, I wear one, you know... Now, if I go off-road, if I go in a group, if I'm riding with people I don't know, but often if I go for a ride, I just won't wear one. If I ride around town, I'll never wear one. Um, and I had this discussion with an Australian police officer when um, <laughs> my wife and I, a few years ago in Melbourne, were riding from my house to the beach, which was about approximately 600-metre ride. Um, and the policeman sort of saw me, yelled at us to come over to him and said, you know, asked me what I thought I was doing. And I... Um, he said, oh, well, why well, didn't have a helmet on? I said, I fundamentally disagree with helmet laws. 
And he got really angry with me and started yelling at me. Uh, so that was challenged to his authority. He, he he started yelling at me about kids and like emotive language about mm. you know about like so throwing kids throwing kids in there and, mm. and just throwing this like emotional stuff about. So like, okay, but like you know, I'd ra- I'd rather these kids that you know who who are doing everything that I do because obviously that, that must be what they're doing. Um, saw myself and my wife, two healthy adults, riding from our house to the beach, a safe pastime. Mm. Um, you know, we're responsible, healthy adults, you know, doing something which is, I think, um, safe. It's something which, you know, I would inco- I would want people to see and, and want to do, um, you know, environmentally friendly, all this and that, that you know. And the guy just could not take it, could not take it. So he fined both of us $180. Because um, poor Georgia, he said, uh, do you agree with him? And she's like, well, yeah. <laughs> um, and then he wrote me a letter um, saying wow. about how, how how his wife had fallen off her bike and she'd hit her helmet, which had broken. Um, and undoubtedly that saved her life. Which is anecdotal. Which is... May or may not be true, but we'll never know. Absolute bollocks. We, I mean, anyway. So I wrote him a letter back quite long. Um, explain Blimey. Ex- explaining my viewpoint um, and I put a lot of thought into it because over the years I've had the opportunity to put a, a lot of thought into yeah. it you know because I, I did the old Rafa campaigns when we, we didn't have to wear helmets oh, and I really? didn't wear them and people complained at me and at Rafa um, they used to complain that was the only shit that Volpine ever got was not, yeah. not wearing helmets yeah um, we, you are promoting unsafe cycling yeah I, I remember responding to something um, and I think Rafa actually took it and used it as their stock response for... Yes, I've read it, and that's one of the reasons I remember wanting to get in touch, because I can remember reading that and going, nailed it, there yeah. you go. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel quite strongly about it. Um, it you know, I, like, the, the thing that kind of boils down to with me, and, like, this policeman kind of, they sent it back saying this, this police, like, he's on holiday, so he can't accept the letter, so obviously the guy just didn't want to deal with it. But it's like... There was no room in anyone's head um, for keeping, for having two ideas alive at once. Yes. So, do I do I believe in wear in in helmets? Yes, I do. They can they, they can save your life. Mm. Do I do I always wear one? No. Mm. Right. Okay. Like that's okay. You you can have two ideas going at once. There can be two ideas. It doesn't have to be this or this. It's this cementing of opinions that I think that that scares me. Whether it's helmets, you know, whether it's tire widths in cycling or pressures, or yeah, it's amazing the things that people get upset about. And you go out into a wider world, and so so I I used to be a big fan of Twitter, and I've really really gone off it, and I find it quite hard sometimes because Twitter seems to be a place that people with strongly held opinions fire opinions at people, mm. you know, and they have this armour so that those opinions don't come back. And what I've taken pleasure in in the past is being incredibly reasonable and nice about things that seem really offensive. Like, you know, very rarely now, actually, because everyone realises you just tried the best. I occasionally get someone on Twitter saying, yeah, fuck you, what about all those Volpine shareholders? And I go, look, I'll have a chat with you about it, but not to see if you're going to be anonymous, you're going to be sweary and, and rude. I'll talk 
talk all about it. It's not a problem um, because there's nothing to have a problem about. But if you're going to be a dick, you know, I will be open-minded. Maybe you're right about some stuff. Mm. Maybe. But we're not going to get that opportunity because you've immediately gone in hard. And also, something that really pissed me off is anonymity, which is cowardice. Mm. Um, And, you know, you'll have had some... I I haven't seen any, but you'll no doubt have had some stuff. You know, uh, EF and its other sort of guys, this is Garmin, and and before that, you know, uh, with with John Fouters, I see he gets stuff, you know, about doping and about zero tons, all these clubs. Wherever you are in whatever sphere of life, somebody's getting some shit for something. Yeah. And, And I think that's created Trump. Mm-hmm. And it's created Brexit, and mm-hmm. because the world, the media, is now about uh, contrast. It's just who shouts loudest. Yeah. Doesn't matter what, if what you're saying is true or not. You know, you can just say what. You... The validity of everyone has an opinion, and, and this thing about well, hang about. So people say, yeah, but you know, fucking experts. You know, what do they know? And you go, you know what? I don't. So somebody said to me, so this thing about elites. I get into politics, talk about this for ages. We're going to have to polish off soon. But basically, so so I've got this fundamental problem with people talking about elites. We shouldn't keep giving it to the elites. Mm. So for me, if someone's elite, if you're an elite cyclist, you're the best cyclist. You're you're the cream of cyclists. You have got to that position. You've worked towards it. You have earned it. If you're an elite academic, you know more about a subject than I do. If you're an elite um, medieval historian... I am unlikely to have much to offer in terms of opinion on medieval history. So I'm going to go to you and ask your opinion. Now, I will also keep in mind that you will have your own biases about medieval history. And I want to speak to another medieval historian to see what they think about the Enlightenment or whatever. (laughs) So so you've always got to keep an open mind. You've got to have a level of cynicism. So I want elites to run my country. I want really clever, really well-educated people to do things that I'm not good at. But at the moment, it seems like, no, we should let every man do that. And you go, no, but every man isn't qualified. I mean, you, I don't <laughs> know if you would have seen, there was a cartoon, I can't quite remember the wording, basically of people on a plane, just saying, what does this pilot know? He's like, you know, he, he's the elite, and then it's like a wheel flight, that kind of thing. It's like, yeah, but you know, he's there for a reason. Like, he knows what he's doing. Mm. Uh, I th- it's, it, it's totally true. There's this, just this kind of idea that... Um, uh, these elite—they're screwing us over. But yeah, I mean, also like it's also true that some elites have screwed of course, over but like people. Uh, I mean, that's been going on for forever. Some segment of humanity, in whatever position, is being a dick at some point. There are dick cyclists, dick motorists, dick politicians, but yeah. there's also very, very kind and good and decent cyclists and motorists and politicians and tennis players and cooks and anything yeah. else. And the problem is, you know. With going back to cycling is that you know cyclists get tarred with the brush of a certain set of people who do dick things and we're seen and because that stays in the memory if you're in a car and you're not a cyclist and you see cyclists doing stupid stuff you think that's what cyclists do mm. because that's the way unfortunately most human brains work is you need to make to have generalisms you have to have rules so that you can make decisions you know I got food poisoning from eating oysters so I will never eat oysters again yeah I've seen a cyclist, you know, my wife, when we arrived in London, got hit by a cycle courier who went through a red light and she, she really hurt her hip and she had to go to hospital and stuff like that. And 
being a cyclist, I didn't think, fuck you all cyclists, I hate mm-hmm. you all. I just thought, he's a dick. Yeah. But if I hadn't been a cyclist, would I have thought, oh, fucking cyclists, now I'm going to have a thing about them. Yeah. And so we just got to have a little bit more sort of, we've got to step back and go, it, we've lost the ability to just measure things and find a middle ground, and I just, I don't know how we're going to get it back, basically. I, it's careering off in a very dangerous <laughs> very very dangerous direction in my opinion and I, I look at it I mean I've completely given up on um, I mean Facebook I just got rid of because I just mm. I, I hate it and Twitter I just don't use um, I, I just you know every now and again like I'll read you know I'll read an article on it's like a, a cycling website or something I'll read you know you see comments people talking about these these kids that I work with Mm. Like just saying these like ridiculous stuff about them. They've got they're no just idea. human beings. They're just they're just kids, yeah. you know, like doing the absolute best they can. Mm. And uh, it's uh, you, you read these opinions. First thought is like, why are you letting this matter to you? Right. Like, why, why do you have to say this? I think it's jealousy. Yeah. But, On a simplistic level. Yeah, yeah, but it's can't people recognise that? that like. I mean, to have to, to have conversation about sport is correct because that's what it's there for. It's fun to talk about yeah. this stuff. And I, I mean, people, you know, on the terraces to go to Bristol City and you hear, like, you know, what people are talking about about this player or that player. And, mm. and, and it's like, okay, that's, that's part of it. And the athletes get paid and so they... You could call it banter, I guess. Yeah, I, I, they get paid because they're in a position to, to kind of take that. Right. And they know it's going to happen. But like what I see now, like being written down, and like because these guys can read it too, you know. Yeah. Like they read up. I've seen bonkers stuff written about me. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. nuts. And you mm. think somebody somewhere believes that. Yeah. And then you think, well, actually, what I've learned is, does it matter? You know. And, and I'm really not that well known. I'm not. I'm not in a public sphere. I mean, I was somewhat known within a very small sort of cycling sphere, and I've seen stuff. And you know, occasionally, you know. You see something. Somebody texts you, a mate says, oh, have you seen what say? Somebody says so-and-so. And you go, and two years ago, when you're having a breakdown, it matters to mm. you because you've got no defences. It means an enormous amount. Whereas now, I just think, it's pity. Mm. I feel pity. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember, you know, when, you know, back when Charlie and I got into trouble for the World Championships years ago. It's 2005. So the background to that, because I read the book, is basically that you, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, you rode for the Italian team. I mean, our, we basically used the interests, um, our interests and their interests and, and sort Formed of... Formed an alliance. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, you know, it's the wrong thing to do. Um, it, it happened a lot and still does happen. Yeah. Uh, in it's a very place. political yeah. system, cycling. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I, I remember some of the people saying some of the stuff, you know, what people were saying. Oh, it's vicious. I, I still do now, you know, like, people still say stuff now to, like, to Charlie or myself. And it's like, did, did that affect you in any way? And it, it, maybe it did. Maybe they, were, you know, lost a part of their innocence or, or, or whatever it was. Um, but, man, come on. Um, I think it goes back to the thing is whether we think they're 
you know, some things are mistakes, some things are clearly yeah. mistakes, some things are things you could have done better. Yeah. I think pretty much everything we do, you can do better. Um, but what I've always liked, so I wrote a another blog that I wrote. I ended up getting on Sky News because of it. I wrote a blog about Lance Armstrong, but I'll talk about the blog I wrote about David Miller. So I'd always been a massive fan of David Villa, and then I was really disgusted when he found out to be doping. And then I came back and I just thought, he's just a human being. Mm-hmm. You know, he made mistakes, you know, and I heard about, you know, the turmoil he went through. And I thought, I could have made that mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, and just beca- and, and it's what drives me absolutely crazy is this writing off of someone because of a mistake they've made. And I just think it's an incredible narrow-minded, selfish and lazy thing to do. Mm. I mean, we all, I mean, people make mistakes, uh, we do. And, you know, I, I think it, you're judged really harshly now um, in the context of what we are just talking about, you know, with, with this kind of attitude is like, right, you're good or you're bad. And, mm. and if you're good, then you're great. And if you're bad, then you, you're done. It's like well, no, nobody's going to be 100% good or bad. You know, there's a great... Um, there's a great Susan Sontang quote. I think it's like um, 5% of people are good, 5% of people are bad, and 90% of people just go either way, depending right. on depending on who they're with. Like, um, which you know, like, who is really really bad? Like, like an absolute minority, you know. Of, of and those people are probably on the bell curve of good and bad. Most people are probably. Well, you know, you could talk about, you know, good and evil and about how people fall off the bell curve towards evil. And it probably accelerates and there's all kinds of background. I don't I don't believe that anyone is is good and bad. I can see kids that I around my son or my daughter who are having problems and how that could come off. But like so for me, you know, that sort of back. I, I, don't talk, I think it upsets my mum, so I don't talk about it because she, she listens to these. But, you know, the background to my childhood, I think I could have gone quite badly off the rails because that, you know, out of, you know, this bitterness and the difficulties of X, Y and Z. And, you know, I think you, you have to make a conscious choice to go at life positively. But I had a great advantage that I had a loving mother. Mm-hmm. So I always had that. That was, that was such an important, you know, crutch to to lean on so i always had that stability and some some kids don't you know if you, if you end up in a uh, in a home which nearly happened to me um then uh because my mum's very seriously ill then fuck you know potentially you're not just not having a re- somebody really close to you who's loving but also you're being abused or something awful like that and that was incredibly common and and now we're going to blame those people because of the horrors that have genuine horrors that have happened to them and I, I, I listened to a, a really interesting programme with, uh, you, you know, Ian Wright, the ex-Arsenal striker, yeah, England yeah. striker. So he he had a really rough time as a child. He was very naughty to the point where he went to prison as a teenager. And then this guy, this much older guy, took him under his wing and showed him fatherly love. Yeah. And basically, I mean, it chokes me up just talking about it. It's... Uh, Ian Wright, but this is my obsession. This is what I actually. This is what I want to do if I could retire early. So I want to hopefully bring kids back from the brink. I think there's a crossroads quite often in our lives, and and I recognise I could, there were a couple of crossroads that I took the right turn on when I could have made the wrong turn. And with Ian Wright, somebody helped him across. You know, mixing my analogies basically is somebody put Ian Wright down the right road yeah. when he was really close to going way off 
and he became one of the greatest footballers in history. Yeah. And that's nuts. So just think about that on a normal scale, where somebody's just offered the chance to go and find a partner who they can love, and they can get a good job, and they can have a decent life. You know, but instead they end up a criminal, they end up on drugs on the streets, and it can happen, and it's not a wild sort of fantasy to look at life like that. No, no, I mean, it doesn't take much, you know, it's, it's one turn left or right, mm. you know. Um, but yeah. There we go. There's a nice big thumping <laughs> subject to end with, yeah. but we've, um, we've, uh, we talk quite a lot. I'm just having a look, uh, Blimey, an hour and a half. Blimey. We've gone 50% over the designated podcast wow. time aim wow. system. You're going to have to do some serious editing. No, I never, ever edit them. Um, I think it's really important not to ever edit them, even when sometimes, you oh, know, yeah, the sound's not good. With the waitress uh, serving the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. chicken sandwich. And, uh, and it sounded like we set it up. Yeah, it did, actually. Because I think the uh, what's so important is to be real. So hopefully we'll reason reasonably real. Cool. Thank you very much, Tom. No problem at all. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, There was plenty of cycling in there, but I think we both kept that um, within the sphere of life. Um, I think it's also really interesting uh, doing a podcast with somebody I really don't know. Um, I think that you, uh, if you just get someone intelligent, um, somebody who is erudite and has uh, their opinions and and thoughts together, you can talk to just about uh, anyone, obviously. Um, And uh, rather than someone like Matt Stevenson, I know much better, where, you know, there's uh, more banter, I suppose. Um, And I think that's the important thing about all these conversations. They're all different. You know, everyone's different. Um, there are different moods, different times of your life, different times of day where you're going to talk about different things. Um, and conversation as a whole is fascinating and it's very important. I just the act of conversation, if, even if you just talk, um, is a form of human bonding. Um, uh, it doesn't mean that me and Tom are going to get together. There's not going to be any hot stuff. Uh, I just mean that somehow we are connected with the world, with society and a community. Um, and I think that's extremely important for humans. And not all of us get that, uh, either because of our busy lives, because we're lonely, because we're very, very shy, uh, because we're depressed, um, or a multitude of different reasons. Um, and um, I, I think, you know, the podcasts help us with that, potentially. Um, I think we just need to hear human voices. Um, I think that's one of the most fascinating things about life. Um, anyway, that's a bit of a ramble. Um, you can check out jackets on framjacket.com. You can go to Twitter, where I don't do nearly as much as I used to, uh, on framjacket, at framjacket. And it's at framjacket for the Instagram, where I do lots more, because I like pretty pictures. Um, and um, if you need some help, um, I have been approached in the past uh, for help from people who feel that I can help them. And I'm very glad to talk to you. I don't, I'm not a professional. Um, so please to approach uh, Mind or calm um, or, or your doctor um, or a professional um, and, and get talking and, and get the ball rolling if you're feeling really shitty because um, uh, you just need to put one front front of the other because there are lots of people out there who can help um, I think I should mention that more in podcasts but at the end of the day we support mind for um, good mental health okay uh, take care and um, I'll see you again soon